Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 66, Stories of Fish. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. The shellfish which carried a love token. A tiny shellfish once bore a message of love from the east coast to the Bay of Plenty. On a visit to relatives who lived at the Bay of Plenty, a young man had seen a dark-skinned, brown-eyed, black-haired girl who lived in Opape, and had fallen in love with her. Not having the swift decision of Tutanekai or Aponga, he returned to his home near Gisborne with his love undeclared, not even knowing whether the girl had noticed him among the other visitors. At night, as he tossed on his sleeping mat, and by day in the forest snaring birds, and in waka on fishing expeditions, his thoughts turned towards her. The long, winding Waiawika Gorge was the only high road through the mountains, and there, a lonely traveller might fall prey to his enemies. The route round the coast was long and hazardous, and he had no waka of his own. His yearning spirit, at length, devised a way by which a message of love could be carried to her. He chose a shellfish from the beach, and, whispering to it in the quiet hours of the night, he threw it into the sea with a prayer that it might reach the loved one and pass on his message. The little shellfish was tossed to and fro by the waves. It sank and rose again. A current from the south bore it on its way, past East Cape, and into the warmer waters of the Bay of Plenty. By swimming and crawling along the rocks, it eventually reached Opape and lay on the sand. That day, or the next, the young woman went down to the beach to gather pipi and mussels for food. She picked up the little shellfish and then threw it away because it was so small. Somehow, it managed to get near her again as she moved along the beach. Several times it was picked up and discarded, not only on that day, but the next and the next. Presently, she came to recognise it by some special markings on the shell. Whenever she turned, it seemed to be under her hand, and no matter how often she threw it away, it came back. She realised that there was something peculiar about this shellfish that would come back every time it was thrown away, and to humour it, or put an end to its persistence, she threaded it on a wisp of flax and hung it around her neck. There was no one to tell her how dangerous the shellfish was to her maidenhood, The shellfish sang a song without words, without tune, that entered her breast and filled her heart with longing and love. She remembered the young man of Titarangi Hill who had danced in the house of amusement some months before. She was in love with him. She longed for him. She could not live without him. You must go to him. Now, 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 whispered the little shellfish. We do not know how she went, whether the young man came part of the way to meet her, whether she persuaded her father to take her by waka, or whether she toiled over the ranges, alone or in company. What is far more important is that she reached her goal, and was united with her lover because the little shellfish had carried out its task so well. How Eels Came Down to Earth In the beginning of time, when the heaven and earth were first created, many different kinds of eel and fish lived in the cool waters of the second overworld, in the spring of Punakoariki. Tane Mahuta 
fashioned the son as an ornament for his father, Rangi. The years went by, and Maui harnessed the sun to the sky and made him travel slowly across the arch of the heavens. More years passed, and the waters of Rangitamaku, the second heaven, were heated by the sun and evaporated, so that the overworld was full of vapour and the springs dried up. Water plants grew and covered the steaming surface waters, and there was no place where eels could live in comfort. Instead, they decided to go down to earth. There was Para, the barracuda, Tuere, the blind eel, Mango, the shark, Inanga, the whitebait, Piharo, the lamprey, Tuna, the eel, and Noido, the conga eel. Their descent was hurried by Matuku, the bittern, who could see them clearly in the shallow water and gave them no rest as he hunted them through the water weeds. On their way down through the heaven, they met Tafaki, who was climbing up in search of his wife. Why are you leaving your home? he asked, and they told him that their world had become parched and they feared the sharp beak of Matuku. Is Papa, the earth you have left, a fitting place for us? All is well, Tafaki replied. There are streams and lakes, swamps and seas of cool water, and room for you all. At first, they took refuge in the streams, but Pada became vicious and attacked Tuna, who fled to the swamps and deep water holes. Then, Para took Noero and Tuere with him and swam out to sea, where he lives in the great ocean of Kiwa. Tuere, the blind eel, who is also called the hagfish and is loathsome and slimy, had a parting word for Tuna. Stay in your repulsive swamps, he said. There you will be caught by the children of Tu and cooked for food. Tuna was angry. Go to the sea if you want. I warn you that you will become food for Mango the shark. And so it proved to be, for the shark is the only fish that will eat the blind eel. Piharo, the lamprey, burrowed under the shingle banks, and Inanga, the whitebait, departed for the shallows to save himself from the hungry mouths of Pada, Noero, and Mango. Not even Tuna was safe, for Matuku, the bittern, followed him, and still preys on him in the endless swamps of Papatuanuku. Cuckoo and Pipi. Cuckoo the mussel and Pipi the cockle were at enmity, they and their families. They shared a beach at Onitahua and it was there that their battle raged. The Pipi dug themselves into the sand and held their par against the attack of the Cuckoo. The mussels advanced in ranks, thrusting at their foes with their tongues, but they became clogged in the sand and had to retire to the rocks at the end of the beach. That is the reason why cockles burrow in the sand and mussels cling to the rocks. Tapu Fakahara and Takoaho, who are the fathers of whales and sharks, heard about the quarrel and were vastly amused about the antics of the little people. Tapu Fakahara asked what they were fighting about. They are fighting for possession of the beach, Takaaho said. We should give them something to fight about. Our children are hungry and they would make a tasty meal for them. Let us attack them now. It would be of no use, Takaaho replied. They would retire behind their sand defences. Tepu still thought that a sudden attack would provide a meal for his children, and Takaaho led his followers in a rush up the beach. The pipi flew from them as swiftly as birds and burrowed into the sand so quickly that they were lost to sight in a moment. The whales were stranded on the beach. Their gills filled with sand, and they died. The story must be true. 
Have we not all seen or heard of stranded whales which have come ashore to continue the conflict and have been left behind by the receding tide? Tutarakoika, the chief of Wales. Trigger warning, the following story features Fakari White Island. Women and children, and even grown men, kept well away from the big rock called Toka Ahumia because it was the Tuahu, the altar and sacred place of the old Tohunga, Tetahi o Terangi. He was a man to be feared, a killer at a distance, practiced in black magic and a familiar of evil spirits. For long they had wished that he would fall victim to the powers of darkness, but the aged Tohunga flourished and overcame his enemies by the power of his mind and the influence of Fiddle, the evil one. We must kill him, but it will need cunning and careful planning, the Rangatera said. They sat long into the night, weaving a plot as skillfully and as patiently as a woman at work on a tāneko pattern. When daylight came, they prepared their waka for a sea voyage, laying in stores of food and water. A messenger was sent to Tatahi to tell him that the men of the iwi were going on a mutton bird hunting expedition to Fakari, the volcanic island in the Bay of Plenty, and that they needed him as their tohunga to protect them on the voyage and to perform the sacred rites before the hunt began. It was a long time since Tatahi had been invited to share in communal activities, and he accepted the invitation. He was placed in the seat of honour in the largest waka, and the fleet went down the river and into the open sea. A light breeze filled the sails, and by late afternoon they beached on the steaming shores of Fakari. Some of the men were left behind to guard the waka, while the hunters went off to seek the titi. Tetahi accompanied a group of leading rangatera, who scrambled along the edge of the Pahutukawa-lined cliffs round to the northeast side of the island where they found a cave in which to spend the night. As soon as it was dark, torches were lit, and the men caught the mutton birds as they sat in their shallow burrows and holes, dazzled by the light. It was a strange sight, with the smoky, flaring torches lighting the steaming soil, and the birds sitting motionless with staring eyes, waiting to be caught by the hunters. Before long, each man had obtained a good catch of birds, which were taken back to the cave. Because of his tapu, Tetahi lay down well away from the others, and, tired after his unusual exertion, went to sleep. As the shadows of the cave were softened by the first light of dawn, Tetahi awoke and listened for a while to the tumble of the waves on the rocks below. There was no other sound. A sardonic smile crossed his face. The hunters were evidently still exhausted. He turned over and raised himself on his elbow to look at them. Close at hand, he saw his bundle of titi birds, but they were the only things in the cave. There were no other heaps of birds, and no other men. He scrambled to his feet and ran outside. A horrible thought entered his head. He rushed along the cliffs, pulling himself past dangerous places, until he came in sight of the beach where they had landed the previous afternoon. There was no sight of the men or waka there. He raised his eyes and saw, at some distance, the waka gliding across the still water and the spreading arrows of their wakes. Faintly, there came to his ears the song that gave time to the paddlers. 
A gust of wind brought a sulphur-laden cloud of smoke across the shore, blocking out his view of the dwindling waka and making him cough violently. He could feel the ground trembling beneath his feet. There was no water anywhere on the island. The calabashes had been taken, and already he was thirsty. But Tatahi was not without resources, even though he had been marooned on a volcanic island. Grimacing in the heat, he took three blades of flax from his girdle. They were a powerful aid in his magic arts, for he had plucked them from a sacred flax bush which grew near his home. He stood at the edge of the cliff, waving the leaves and chanting a very old and potent karakia. Tangaroa, the sea god, heard the prayer and sent Tutara Koika, the ariki and rangatira of the whales, to his aid. Tetahi saw the huge black shape emerge from the sea, where deep water lies close to the shore. He hurried down to the beach, wrapped the flax leaves in his girdle, and swam out to the whale. As he reached it, the huge creature submerged, and when it rose gently from the water again, Tetahi was safely ensconced in the hollow on its back. It turned and swam south to the mainland at the Whakatane Harbour mouth, its slave whale following in its wake. They made a detour, and such were not seen by the returning titi hunters in their waka. The tohunga left the whales at the mouth of the estuary, swam up the river and walked across to his home. He rested there for a while until he knew that the waka would be returning. After they landed, they would have to pass his sacred rock, Toka Ahomia, to get home. He sat down in front of it, holding the tapu flax leaves in his hands, and watched the rangatira and commoners of the iwi filing past. They had seen him as they dragged the waka ashore, but there was no escape. They did not dare to look directly at the old tohunga, but walked past with their heads averted while Tetahi looked at them with grim amusement. He did not trouble them long with his presence, but went to live at Matata. When he died, he became a marikiho, or god of the sea, and was doubtless able to thank Tutarakuika in his own language for his rescue from the perils of the volcanic island. Polaris Jack Even in the brief period of Pākehā history in New Zealand, there have been a few events which have already begun to assume a legendary aura. A recent one is to be found in the antics of Opo, the tame dolphin of Opononi. Another, even more famous, is that of the remarkable character Polaris Jack, the dolphin of Polaris Sound. It is history and not legend that tells how Polaris Jack met steamers and escorted them through Admiralty Bay as far as French Pass, and that a special act of parliament was passed in order to protect him. Speaker's note here, Polaris Jack is thought to be the first individual sea creature to be protected anywhere in the world under modern law. Legend can go further back in time and recount more wonderful deeds than any history. It is legend that tells us that two men loved one girl. She chose one of them for her husband, and the rejected lover, Ruru, who was a powerful man, seized the girl and threw her over the edge of a cliff. Her husband had seen this dreadful deed and attacked Ruru, but he was overpowered and in turn thrown on the ugly rocks below, where his spirit joined that of his young wife and journeyed to the Ranga. Full of pride, Ruru climbed down to the beach to inspect the mangled bodies of the lovers. 
His attention was attracted by a grey body rising from the waves. He was startled for a moment and then realised that it was a dolphin and cursed it. The words he used were those of an ancient enchantment which he had once overheard and were so powerful that the dolphin was killed and its body floated ashore. These events, unknown to Ruru, had been watched by a tohunga who came down to the beach and accused him of killing the young people and of using an enchantment which was reserved for those who were students of the Fariwananga. You have desecrated the gods and wantonly destroyed your fellow beings, their fairest creation, the Tohunga told him. You cannot escape punishment. By this time, Ruru's arrogance had vanished. He cringed before the Tohunga's anger, but the priest was implacable. Here lies the dead body of this dolphin. I command your spirit to depart from you and to enter the fish. You must not leave this coast, but devote yourself to good deeds and escort the waka as they enter and leave the sound. Guide them and protect them until I release you. Ruru's body fell to the ground, and at the same moment, the dolphin stirred, contorted its body, and slithered back into the waves. Once every year, it is said, Ruru would return and beg the tohunga to release him from his long duty, but was bidden to go back and carry on his work. Eventually, the tohunga grew old and died, and there was no one to take the curse from Ruru. Through the long years and the longer centuries, the dolphin was the escort of the waka of Polaris Sound. Then came the white man with his monstrous iron ships, and Ruru guided them through the waterways to French Pass as he had done for the waka for so long. Polaris Jack has not been seen for many years, speaker's note since 1912. As the white man's mana grew stronger, the Māori gods grew weak. The curse may have worn thin and powerless with age, or it may have been dissipated by the white man's materialism. Who can tell? We can only hope that Ruru has been absolved of his crimes of long ago, and found peace in the placid waters of the Sound. Polaris Jack is someone we will return to in a future episode. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaltearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.